This is the Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren, with the Colorado AFL-CIO and Denver Newspaper Guild. On this episode, we have author and University of Colorado law professor Ahmed White to discuss his new book on the industrial workers of the world called Under the Iron Heel, The Wobblies and the Capitalist War on Radical Workers. Welcome to the Labor Exchange, Professor White. Oh, thank you. I'm very happy to be here. Great. Uh, We'd like to start our show by getting to know our guests. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yes, you, uh, you, you noted I teach at the University of Colorado at the law school. I've been there about 20, 23 years or so. Um, and I taught a couple of other places, but I've spent most of my career there. I'm originally from, uh, from Louisiana, uh, grew up on a farm down there. And I've, um, I've been writing about labor and uh, labor history and labor repression for um, most of my career, but, but particularly in the last uh, 10 or 15 years. I did a book about um, the Little Steel Strike in the 1930s, an important and violent uh, struggle during that period. And uh, this is my second book uh, about the Wobblies. Yeah. And I think our audience may be a little more familiar than, 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 than most, but can you start by introducing our listeners to the industrial workers of the world, the IWW, also known as the Wobblies? Yeah, a lot of people know about the Wobblies, but not enough. Uh, not, not enough. Um, the organization was founded in 1905 uh, in Chicago by a group of um, mostly radicals and reformers, so radicals at the center of that uh, of that effort, socialist, uh, some anarchist, um, and some industrial unionist, with the idea of organizing the entire industrial working class. Um, into what they imagine would be uh, one big union. Um, their, and their notion here, and they were a radical organization, their notion here was to eventually organize enough workers that they could call one big strike uh, that would um, lay siege to the means of production and bring the capitalists to their knees and force them to relinquish uh, the means of production, the control of society, and, and allow these workers to establish what they called a workers' commonwealth. Uh, so it's quite a remarkable organization. They never came close to pulling that off, uh, but they certainly became large enough and threatening enough to get themselves persecuted and thrown in prison in large numbers. Uh, and that's kind of the story that that I end up telling uh, in, in the book here. And the union contained in its ranks some uh, relatively well-known uh, people, Big Bill Hayward, William Dudley, Big Bill Hayward was... Uh, the leader of the organization for most of the period that I write about. Um, there are people like Frank Little that some folks know was assassinated in um, Butte, Montana in the uh, in summer of 1917. Um, people like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, was associated with the organization for some time. So it's a, it's a storied organization, uh, legendary in a lot of ways, and, and rightly so. Yeah, and then you 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 hinted at this in the in in your answer, but in the book you lay out a legal strategy that opponents of the Wobblies use to criminalize their organizing and their free speech work. Can you explain a bit of how that came about and what types of laws uh, they were able to pass? These opponents of the IWW. Sure. So the IWW was again founded in 1905. It 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 floundered around a bit uh, for about a a decade or so 
Uh, it led some important strikes at Lawrence, Massachusetts in 1912, for instance, the Bread and Roses strike, uh, a big one a year after that in Patterson, New Jersey. But the one thing it could never really do during that period was build itself a stable membership. Well, it figured things out in the next decade, beginning around 1916. Uh, the union began to make considerable headway organizing migratory workers, uh, mainly west of the Mississippi River. And uh, as it became more successful in doing that, it made more powerful enemies. Um, the, it was the union's misfortune that its rise co coincided with uh, America's entry into the First World War. And that ended up being important because that was one of the bases on which the union was criminalized. So in more specific answer to your question, um, the idea that the union's adversaries had, and this included big capitalists out West and, and a lot of important politicians, governors, senators, Woodrow Wilson himself, uh, the strategy they had was simple. It was to make being a member of the union a crime. Um, they had to do that in a way, though, that, that would be lawful. They couldn't just enact a law that said anyone who's a member of the industrial workers of the world is a criminal. And so they did a couple of other things instead. Uh, one thing they did uh, uh, was to use uh, the country's entry into the war. Um, in 1917, the Congress enacted uh, the Espionage Act. It's still on the books, if you know the story of Julian Assange and uh, Edward Snowden and people like that. It's been amended a lot but uh, since then. But it, as it was enacted in 1917, it contained a provision that made it a crime to interfere with the war effort. Um, that was enacted with the idea that it would be used against Wobblies, members of the IWW, as well as socialists and other uh, dissidents. Um, and so that was one thing. The other thing that was done that same year, um, Idaho enacted the first so-called criminal syndicalism statute. Uh, what this did was make it a crime to be um, someone who advocated industrial or political change was the language the laws used by means of crime or sabotage or other forms of violence. And also to make it a crime to be a member of an organization that advocated that, didn't necessarily do that kind of thing. It was enough merely to advocate that kind of revolutionary change. If you're a member of an organization that did that, uh, then you could be prosecuted for a felony. And then the third major thing that was done to criminalize the IWW was to make use of uh, vagrancy laws. They were already on the books everywhere, uh, the county level, the municipal level, in some cases at the state level. These laws were extremely broadly worded. Um, that was the whole point behind them. They, they were um, devised so that anyone essentially could be charged with vagrancy if he, if he or she couldn't give a good account of himself. Well, this was tailor-made to prosecute wobblies. They roamed around a lot, um, and, and especially the in this period when many of them were migratory workers. Uh, and, and thousands and thousands of them were, were simply charged with vagrancy. It was a misdemeanor crime, which meant you didn't get a lot of procedural protections, and it was very easy to prosecute people, just a couple minutes, and the, the case was over. You were in jail, or you were being run out of town. And so these were the three main ways that the union was uh, was criminalized. There were other cases where union members were framed or prosecuted in circumstances where they shouldn't have been for more conventional crimes, murder in particular. Uh, but those cases, although very serious, were pretty uncommon. <clears throat>
Well, and, and with the vagrancy laws in your book, you lay out that basically these workers were needed. Um, you, you go into more detail on, on sort of why there was, you know, a need during um, harvesting or other times uh, for a lot of workers. But often that need um, would be turned off and off, like on and off, like a light switch where, you know, you needed one minute and we really are appreciative to have you. And then very soon after you need to get out of here as soon as possible. Um, can you go into a little bit of that dynamic and how the the need for labor, um, you know, was used during this time? Oh, sure. That, and that's that's been a longstanding function of vagrancy law. It's kind of regulate the flow of labor, uh, get people out of town when they're not needed or arrest them. Uh, on threat of um, or arrest them in a way that compelled them to work. Uh, either you're arrested for vagrancy, you're convicted of vagrancy, the sentence is you're going to have to work, or you better get to work or we're going to prosecute you for vagrancy. This has been done for centuries, really, with vagrancy laws, but you're quite right. It was used very pointedly when the IWW began to organize migratory workers, and nowhere more so than on, um, on the high plains um, just east of here. Um, where then, uh, as well as now, uh, the dominant crop was wheat, and the Wobblies organized the migratory workers who were needed every summer to bring in the harvest. Um, and so they were prosecuted for vagrancy when too many came to town. Um, they were prosecuted for vagrancy more particularly when being organized in the IWW, they tried to hold out for higher wages. Um, what would happen is these workers would congregate in small towns waiting to be employed by farmers. And if the wage rate wasn't what they wanted, they would not work. And that meant they had to hang around in town. That made them vagrants. And the police would come and arrest them and basically say, you either get to work uh, or we're going to put you in jail or we'll you know, run you out of town or beat you or whatever it may be. And if you were an IWW organizer, and many people were, then you were subject to even more focused attention and, 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 and more readily prosecuted uh, for vagrancy. It was, a, it was a pretty effective way of undermining the, these organizing efforts. Yeah, and I'm going to come back to this topic, but I'm going to I want to uh, go into a little bit more of uh, you as a writer and your writing process. So um, I've been to the wonderful Labor Archive at the University of Colorado and, and read those dynamic direct sources that, that they really do leap from the page. But but my notes tend to end up really dry or, or worse, boring. Um, you know, in your, how do you translate your research that you're doing from direct sources like this into the dynamic, you know, novel-like prose that I, I hear when I read your book? Another way of saying this is what's your advice to, uh, to authors looking to emulate, you know, your style of writing? Well, I, I, I tell you, I, I started out this project some years ago, six, seven, eight years ago, uh, as a book about criminal syndicalism laws. And at some point along the way, I figured out something that should have been obvious to me early on. Uh, no one wants to read a book about laws. They want to read a book about people. And that goes to your question. Uh, I think the key is to make a story like this about people, um, to try to find out uh, as much as you can about them as human beings. And that ended up being quite I think relevant in this project, because one of the things I try to do with this book is write a book about the way repression worked, because I, I don't think that's the kind of thing that's gotten enough attention, whether you're talking about the IWW or the Communist Party or whoever, um, that there's been a tendency, some exceptions, but there's been a tendency 
a longstanding tendency to write about repression in this kind of detached way um, without looking at what it did to the people who were repressed, um, how it did its work. And the way it did its work was to undermine, to often destroy the lives of these people, to break them. Um, and, and, and these laws did that, even though the Wobblies were extraordinarily courageous in the face of what happened to them. But, but you know, every person has, uh, has his or her limits, and um, their limits were often reached. But I think that was an important way of doing what you point to, uh, which is to uh, take these sources um, and this story, which could be in some ways very dry and distant from people after all this happened 100 years ago, and make it something that people today can relate to, um, to get to, for want of a better word, the, the human side of this. And so one of the things I try to do in the book that I consciously do in the book is, is kind of follow some people through this story, this chapter in history. And and not just prominent people of the sort I mentioned earlier, Big Bill Hayward, for instance, but also everyday wobblies, uh, folks that almost no one uh, has ever heard of, and and tell their story. And uh, I'm, I'm not sure how successful I am with that, but I, I tried to do that, and I, I think it did bring um, a more human element um, to the narrative. Well, I'll say I haven't just read the book. I feel you were successful in that. I feel like you really do connect with some of the uh, characters, the real people um, whose lives were affected by this this repression that you 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 discuss. Um, a lot of the book focuses on IWW's organizing of agricultural workers and lumber workers. Um, can you talk a little bit about that? Um, you know what made that organizing initially successful, and um, some of the you know, some of the things that they were pushing for within that organizing around those those two industries? Yes, that's a that's a great question. That's a key issue. I mentioned earlier the IWW floundering for its first decade before it kind of found its footing. Well, the way it found its footing uh, was by devising a new means of organizing workers. And that involves something called, uh, usually called a job delegate system. Basically, the idea was to... Uh, send organizers out among the workers to be organized rather than to have those organized organizers remain stationary waiting for the workers to come to them um the other thing that this new system of organizing put a premium on inherently was to uh use not only use the workers themselves uh but 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 workers, but to but to open the ranks of organizing to any almost any worker who wanted to be an organizer, and so it democratized organizing to an extraordinary degree. Again, just about anybody could be a job delegate, and then they would follow along with these again typically migratory workers in um, industries like agriculture, like lumber. Um, a little bit later on, uh, construction. Um, oil, uh, a couple of other industries. Well, the union first uh, devised this method in lumber, but it first used it in, um, in, 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 on a significant scale in agriculture. And within a short period of time, uh, what this did was um, create a significant flow of dues into an organization that 
1914-1915 was nearly bankrupt and almost essentially no money and very few members. And with that inflow of revenue, the organization was able then to sponsor more organizing. Um, that led to the formation in 1917 of a dedicated lumber affiliate to match a delegated, a, a dedicated rather, um, agricultural affiliate. Uh, and those two affiliates, the Lumber Workers Industrial Union and the Agricultural Workers Industrial Union, became the two main pillars of IWW organizing from 1916-1917 up through the mid-1920s when the organization um, essentially had, by which time the organization had essentially become um, defunct. Thank you so much for that. The IWW still exists as an organization, and right now it's it's sort of a, a, a you know a small group. You, you see people out at rallies once in a while with an IWW uh, shirt on, but it's more of a signal of of the type of of unionists they are, I guess, more than yeah. And you know they're trying to rebuild the organization, and, and more power to them. Uh, but I, I think even the most ardent wobbly today would would have to admit that the the heyday of this organization was. Uh, the late 19-teens and early 1920s. And, and it continued to exist in some fashion all through the 20th century. In fact, in 1927, as I tell in the book, the, the union kind of took control of uh, a very, very significant strike right here in Colorado, um, a coal strike up and down the Front Range that uh, tragically resulted in, um, in, in the deaths of, um, of about eight people all of them union people during that period. And so there were kind of flashes in the pan. The union also organized a little bit later, uh, the workers building the the um, the Boulder Dam, what was then called the Boulder Dam in Nevada. But for all intents and purposes, for most intents and purposes, by 1925, uh, the union was, it was busted. Yeah, and, and you you conclude the book with that story around the the twenty seven strike. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Um, the the issues, what they were fighting for. Uh, it was a statewide strike, or at least it was focused up here. But then there were some statewide solidarity actions, and and uh, just go into a little, and then maybe um, talk a little bit about the Colorado connection to the Wobblies, Big Bill Haywood, um, and the Western Federation of Miners. That's right. So. Um... So to answer the, the 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 first question first, yes, the 1927 strike was an interesting and again a very tragic episode in Colorado. Uh, the union um, was was battered and busted, as I mentioned earlier, but there were still some stalwarts, and one of them was a very interesting guy uh, called A. S. Embry. Uh, he had um, by uh, the early 20s, he was a about the most prominent IWW who wasn't in prison. Uh, most of the leadership was locked up or out on bail or um, or something like that, but not Embry. Uh, Embry was still out organizing. Well, uh, he didn't remain a free man for long uh, because he was prosecuted and imprisoned in um, Idaho for criminal syndicalism. Um, well, Embry got out uh, and like a small number of dedicated Wobblies, he wasn't done yet. And he and some other Wobblies managed to um, both organize and kind of take hold of this strike here in Colorado, which was, again was a coal strike. 
um, over the usual issues of uh, a combination of uh, an organizing strike and a strike over wages and, and working conditions, which needless to say in coal mining back then were, were pretty uh, were pretty terrible. And it was met with vicious repression, including a shooting uh, in November of 1927 uh, at um, what was ironically called a, a column, the Columbine Mine in uh, a hamlet called Cerne near Erie uh, here in, uh, in, in Boulder County, uh, where the state police during a picket line fracas uh, opened fire on the workers and, and killed, um, I think, six of them, of whom most of them were, 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 were Greeks, uh, it turns out. So you can go today to the cemetery in Lafayette, I think the northeast corner of that cemetery, uh, there's a common grave for, that contains most of the, the men who were killed in that incident. And then um, a couple months later, there was another fracas down in Walsenburg where the police killed um, two people. Um, that strike was broken, and it was broken by the usual combination of repression and the inherent economic strength of these employers. Uh, so that goes to an interesting point about the book and about this kind of research where you often ask, I'm often asked, um, what's the role of repression in breaking these organizations and breaking the strikes they lead? Well, it's it's hard to say what role repression played apart from uh, these other factors. And on some level, it's, it's impossible to say. On some level, it's maybe irrelevant um, because what we do know is that repression was crucial uh, to undermining these organizations. And that was most certainly uh, the case during that 1927 strike. And it was it was the case with the IWW more generally. The union, would the union have prospered were it not repressed? Probably not. But there's a reason these uh, these these people in government and these, these big capitalists um, mobilized this repression against the organization. Um, a reason that underscores the important role that repression played uh, in um, in um, driving this organization into irrelevancy and in breaking uh, breaking the strike. Now, the Colorado connections, uh, interesting. I mean, there was a, a you know a fair bit of organizing by the IWW in Colorado and the beet fields uh, on the eastern plains uh, and some of the wheat. Uh, production, although that wasn't as prominent as it was a little bit further to the east, uh, the most salient connection between the IWW of the 19-teens and 20s in Colorado is one you allude to, and that's the Western Federation of Miners and uh, Big Bill Hayward. And the Western Federation had uh, been very active in so-called hard rock mining in places like Colorado and through, throughout the Mountain West, really, and were at the center of um, some of the Colorado mine wars of uh, the late 19, uh, 1890s and uh, the first decade of the 20th century. And through that process, through those struggles, uh, the union developed um, a strongly militant sensibility and, and to some extent an element of radicalism about it. Uh, at the same time, Big Bill Hayward emerged as uh, a prominent leader of that organization, and was in that capacity uh, when he called to order the convention the summer of 1905 
at which the IWW was founded. In fact, he and others with the Western Federation of Miners brought into the early IWW the considerable membership of the Western Federation of Miners. They didn't stay. Uh, they, the Western Federation of Miners ended up in a rift with the IWW that became eventually became quite bitter. Uh, but it was at the founding of the IWW, the largest affiliate uh, of that organization. And um, and Big Bill stayed in the IWW uh, and ended up at odds with his his former um, his former fellow unionist or comrades in Western Federation of Miners. Yeah, and I, I think reading some of those early Western Federation of Miners uh, um, writing in the the Miners Magazine, their their sort of uh, main publication, you can you can hear a lot of the IWW's ideology or their their thought process being developed um, in that same era we were just talking about. Um, I wanted to ask you on the repression, and again, maybe the way you just answered, you probably can't know this, but like, uh, what effect do you think that repression's having on the labor movement today? Um, you know, I think the main way it works is by uh, the implicit threat, um, the, the sword of Damocles. I think what happened to the IWW in the 19-teens and 20s, and to a somewhat lesser extent to communist uh, organizers in the late 20s and early 30s, and CIO unionists and some other smaller outfits in the 1930s, uh, has made clear to everyone involved in labor organizing uh, what will happen to you if you resort to the kind of uh, aggressively militant tactics that were central to the IWW. Everybody knows that. Um, and that's why they don't do it. And I don't blame them uh, for not doing it because you've got the mighty arm of the state poised to rein you in. And, you know, it begins with the labor law itself. People complain to me all the time as a labor lawyer about the things they can't do that they would want to do, they can't do. And you see a lot of that bubbling up now with these uh, resurgent campaigns or this resurgent organizing at places like Amazon or uh, or Starbucks. Um, can we pick it to organize this place? Well, you can, but you're subject to, uh, essentially subject to unfair labor practice charges and a, a kind of uh, a kind of accelerated election. Uh, can we engage in sympathy strikes? Uh, in support of these other workers who are trying to organize. Well, you can try, but you're facing uh, secondary boycott liability under uh, under Section 8B4. And, you know, and it doesn't matter that you aren't violent uh, or, or not particularly violent, or if there is violence, it doesn't matter if you as a unionist uh, are the one who started it. Um, it didn't matter very much with the IWW. They weren't entirely um, devoid of, of, of complicity in, in, in some destructive acts. I mean, one of the stories that I tell is about the role of sabotage in the repression of the IWW. The union famously celebrated sabotage. It's not 100% clear what they meant by that or, or if they meant at some point something more than... Um, things like um, what they call striking on the job or or working in an inefficient way. In other words, um, there's some evidence to suggest that at some point union members did engage in so-called destructive sabotage, the way we kind of tend to understand that word today. 
But the bottom line is that was pretty uncommon. Um, the union was never dedicated to the kind of overtly violent acts that defined anarchist activism in the late 19th, early 20th century. And it wasn't even committed in theory to violence in the way that the communists were. None of that mattered. It didn't matter the IWW was, frankly, extraordinarily more peaceful than the people who repressed it. Still, the union was blamed. And the specter of the charge of, of being a violent organization committed to sabotage was central to mobilizing the repression that ended up undermining the union. And I think that's still something, we still see echoes of that today. Um, you end up, you know, a group of workers nowadays uh, end up on a picket line engaging in uh, whatever. If that results in some kind of disturbance, uh, a significant disturbance, you, you can bet your bottom dollar they're going to get an injunction on them, limiting how many people can picket, uh, what kinds of signs, if any, they can carry, what they can say on the picket line, all of that. Uh, people in Colorado saw some of that with the King Supers uh, strike uh, some months ago, um, where there wasn't very much in the way of uh, any significant disturbances. So everybody in the labor movement knows that. And that's, again, to me, an echo of what happened a century ago. Yeah, you know, I agree completely. You can see um, during the, the King Super strike, we had accusations. There was a pretty, pretty straightforward and simple march from a, from a press conference to a store uh, that got put into a complaint when you had people who were supporting out there, including folks like the attorney general in support and was part of the, the group that was, um, you know, said they were, were doing something wrong. Um, I wanted to get into um, a question of the this sort of link uh, so that there's a link in your book between the interests of capital and the government um, with the government doing things like declaring martial law um, against the IWW workers. Um, and so can you talk a little bit about that close link between capital and late and uh, government? Yes, that was central to what happened to the IWW. And it was ironically something the IWW uh, predicted at the, the union's founding, uh, Big Bill Hayward, right around the time of the union's founding, the Big Bill Hayward um, prophecy that the union would meet with extraordinary repression. Um, this wasn't a com an uncommon, I should say, a judgment back then. Uh, many people in the labor movement, even if they weren't particularly radical or militant, understood the government as an implacable foe because they understood that the government was in many ways, the state was in many ways captive to the power of capital. Um, that's, I think, significant in a significant way still true. Uh, it was very much true then, and it showed itself in the ability of these big capitalists to get these um, repressive laws enacted. The clearest example of that was were the criminal syndicalism laws. Uh, the very first criminal syndicalism laws were enacted in Idaho in 1917, and also that same season, the spring of 1917, in Minnesota. And in both cases, it was powerful lumber and mining capitalists who essentially um, 
asserted that power in the state legislature, got the act, the acts enacted uh, in order to do what they needed to be done. Um, there was no, there was nothing hidden about it, nothing subtle about it. Um, they said, and in fact, we need a law to put these people in jail. And, um, and that's what was done. Um, in other respects, I think uh, judges and prosecutors um, identified with uh, these big capitalists because they were of the same class, the same social milieu. Um, one of the themes in the book is the prominent role of progressives, um, that era's liberals in persecuting the IWW. Um, that's, again, a central part of the story of what happened to the union, and I think that had a lot to do with the degree to which these people identified with big business, with lumber capitalists, with mining capitalists, with um, with the railroads, with shipping companies, with others who were um, who were um, opposed to the IWW. But I think part of it too was their antipathy to this kind of working class movement. So again, this was an organization of migratory workers. Um, these were very poor people. They were almost all men, virtually all men in, in the industries I mentioned. There were some exceptions, but virtually all men. Um, they were as, as poor as can be. Many of them had no home at all. Uh, they just traveled around, lived in uh, hobo jungles, in bunkhouses, um, wherever they could, they could rest their heads. Um, it was easy for these progressives with their strongly middle-class sensibilities, their strongly, frankly, bourgeois views of the world, uh, to resent and fear these workers. And that was also part of uh, the underpinning, I suppose, of anti-IWW repression. Yeah, and in the book, you you lay out some what I would call political horse trading um, with that the less radical elements of the labor movement took part in. I was thinking specifically the Washington State Labor Council leader was talking about passing pro pro labor legislation at the same time these anti IWW laws are passed. You want to talk a little bit about the you know we'll say the AFL side yeah. of the labor movement and their connection with the IWW in this way. Yeah, so the 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 simple story here is a one of conflict between the IWW and the AFL, that they were they were bitter rivals. Um, I say the simple story because when you begin to sort of look more closely at what happened during this period, it can be more more complicated than that. Sam Gompers, the longtime leader of the AFL during this period. Uh, did despise the IWW, and that attitude was mutual. Uh, he and Big Bill Hayward, for instance, were 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 absolutely uh, um, hostile uh, to each other. And and there's pretty good evidence to show that Gompers played a role in promoting some of the persecution of the IWW. So did some of the state labor councils. Um, but again, it's complicated because not all the labor councils did that, uh, and. Um, some of the affiliates of AFL, bravely, and I think to their credit, not only opposed the enactment of these laws uh, that were used to repress the IWW, but came to the defense of IWW um, inmates, 
uh, once they were incarcerated and were part of a movement that emerged in the early 1920s to get these people out of prison, particularly the ones who were in federal custody, the 160 or so IWWs who were convicted mainly of violating the 1917 Espionage Act to get them out. So, so some of the, the labor uh, councils, uh, some of the affiliates of AFL uh, did come to the support of the IWW. There's another example that kind of underscores that complexity. So a, a couple of episodes that fed this cycle of, of, of persecution of the IWW uh, involved AFL activists as well. So what comes to mind, uh, the Seattle general strike of 1919, and also these so-called Soviets that, that bubbled up in the months after the armistice in, in, uh, in 1918. Uh, these were um, fairly spontaneous organizations in, in cities like Portland. Butte had one as well, uh, where coalitions of socialist, of... Um, of 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 unionist uh, of demobilized sailors and soldiers try to organize um, for reforms uh, that would address the very considerable problems that workers had in this period of rapid demobilization and uh, and frankly impending economic crisis. Well, AFL activists could be found in those ranks as well. So the story of the IWW and the AFL isn't one of, of absolute and universal antipathy, but there was a lot of antipathy there, especially between Gompers and, uh, and the, the IWW and its leadership. Well, and I think you're right, the complexity there, because in my research with trying to get the start of the Colorado AFL-CIO's origin as the State Federation of Labor, you know, we were very closely aligned with the Western Federation of Miners, um, sort of came in, you know, the AFL af affiliated with them in a later date, but we are always sort of at arm's length with that because we're so industrially focused. And so sometimes when I'm trying to talk with folks who have, you know, enough knowledge to know the basics of this, I'm sort of like, eh, it's really complicated. I'm not even quite sure what I you know, what, what exactly is happening there? Because, you know, David C. Coates, the founder of the Colorado State Federation of Labor, you know, was an activist involved with the IWW and other mm -hmm. things and just uh, interesting, uh, strange character for sure. Mm -hmm. But I definitely appreciate that complexity um, that you're that you're describing. Yeah. And it, and it makes sense because, you know, these were workers and unionists with, to some extent, the same basic goals. And, 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 and there clearly was more in common between them and people in, in these organizations than there was between any of them in some fundamental way and these capitalists whose 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 whose, whose businesses they worked for uh, and these capitalists that that were they were actively involved in undermining at the end of the day all of them yeah well and I, I also wanted to ask you with with this era that you're you're talking about, there actually seemed to be, at least in Colorado, more union member participation in you know serving as state house reps and state senators. I could rattle off the current uh, union members that are serving in the state house, and it's significantly lower than the turn of the century in Colorado, and then even this you know sort of World War One era. So you know maybe talk about that the, a little bit about um, how. Uh, unionists that had power that were in the halls of power, how they interacted with the IWW. 
Yeah, so that, that's a great question because uh, the IWW defined itself in significant part in opposition to that kind of activism. In other words, the IWW from the outset rejected what was called parliamentary socialism. Um, that opposition was there at the very beginning and it became stronger as the union um, kind of redefined itself and defined and redefined itself in its first decade and ended up putting it at odds with some of its original founders and champions, most notably most famous socialist in American history, Eugene Debs, um, who remained a, a, a sympathizer with the IWW, but he ended his association with the organization uh, not very long after it was founded because Debs, who famously ran for president, uh, what, four times, uh, was, if nothing else, a parliamentary socialist. He, he, he thought that getting a socialist elected was an important avenue of reform and ultimately revolution. The IWW rejected that. And uh, that was one of the kind of points of conflict between itself and, um, and, and members of the Socialist Party. And it ended up being a point of conflict between the IWW and the communist movement as that emerged in the summer of 1919 and into 1920. Not that the communists were involved in running for office very much in the first few years of that um, movement's existence, but because uh, in a more fundamental way, uh, the union's objection to parliamentary socialism also entailed an objection to the kind of political activism that defined the communists. The communists wanted to capture the power of the state as a conduit to revolution. The IWW's vision was, again, a very different one. Uh, that's what sort of made them syndicalist, anarcho-syndicalist. Uh, they were going to achieve revolution uh, in a way that never involved getting people elected and never involved seizing the power of the state in the fashion of the Bolsheviks they were going to achieve their revolution merely by organizing workers and leading this 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 one big strike this this massive general strike and you know it can be made from centuries vantage um who had the better concept there but it's certainly an interesting uh notion that these workers had well, there's that wonderful letter of an IWW organizer in Denver, Jane Street, who organized domestic workers. And in this letter to another organizer, she she says, uh, talking about some of the women in the union, that the the you know those dang socialists got a hold of them and taught them political action, ruining their you know direct action of the IWW. And, and I think she had more of a direct action in like black keeping a blacklist, uh, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, giving, you know, uh, distributing out, you know, and con uh, helping take away the job market from the sort of sharks that, you know, these types of, high, uh, you know, exploitive hiring agencies. So definitely um, shocking when you first read that as a, as, you know, a unionist like me, and you're just sort of, you know, I, I, every year I'm, I'm helping folks connect to po politics and, and we're trying to get union members elected and other folks elected. We just had an election in Denver recently, um, you know, where we're proud that we have folks that are union supporters or union members running. Um, so, um, you know, that's, that is maybe one of the key differences uh, identified in your book between, you know, the, the greater labor movement and the specific IWW um, ideology. 
Um, I want to uh, pivot a little bit. Uh, my introduction to the IWW came through music. I think that's going to be a lot of people's story as you start looking for labor songs. You know, the the the, the most dynamic and and fun you know, are going to be the IWW. Can you uh, talk a little bit about the importance of music um, to this union and um, and to the movement in general? Yeah. So the 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 one of the many fascinating things about the IWW is. Um, it's, uh, we might say today it's, it's cultural engagement. It's, it's notion that in order to accomplish its goals, workers had to be prepared. Um, they had to be ready. Uh, the readers of the book will see at, at, at some point towards the end, I cite was just, a, I think, a, a extraordinarily, um, subtle and and, 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 and and comprehending account of the IWW that appears in a World War II novel by the writer James Jones, uh, where one of the themes there, and I'll let readers read that for themselves, but one of the themes there among one of his characters is we have to be ready. Um, we have to be ready. So again, the Union's revolutionary vision wasn't one of a coalition with um, say petty bourgeois activist or with political organizers, it was the idea was we workers have to accomplish this ourselves. Um, if we're going to do that, we have to be ready. And being ready meant being ready intellectually, being ready culturally, and being ready not only in the sense of organizing successfully and ultimately leading this one big strike, but being ready to govern this workers' commonwealth that they in, envisaged creating. And if you're going to do that, then you have to, as a class, move beyond vaudeville, move beyond dime novels, move beyond um, alcoholism, move beyond uh, things that undermine the integrity undermine the strength, undermine the intellectual power of the working class. Songs were central to that. Um, because again, these people were organizing among themselves and they knew that their ranks contained many folks. And as an aside, you can see this in their stories, most tragically and movingly in their prison records. A lot of these men were orphans. Um, some of them were said in their prison records and prison interviews, they've been on their own since six years old, eight years old. Uh, very few of them, there were some exceptions, but very few of them had gone past sixth, seventh grade. Um, they were not ready. They had to get ready. Songs were one way of accomplishing that of articulating the union's vision of getting these workers to thinking about important questions of class, of political power, of organizing strategy. Um, they were very effective for that purpose. And they featured alongside other things that defined the union uh, in this period, um, speeches, uh, newspapers, pamphlets, 
The IWW was extremely active on all of those fronts. It encouraged literacy among its members and its union halls all over the country were uh, as a rule well stocked with things like musical instruments with facilities for public speaking and also libraries um, on all sorts of subjects, not just labor history or political economy and that sort of thing, the usual things you would imagine, but um, but biology and, uh, and music and, um, and, and literature, all of that. It's very impressive um, what they were trying to do then. And you're quite right, the songs were central to that. The Little Red Songbook that many people are familiar with, those songs all contain a message. They are topical songs, as we would say today. And they were very effective in that regard. Well, and I'm 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 struck by that because that's something that when I've done research, I found getting into older union publications, just how detailed they were on new laws that were coming out, rights that you had. Um, so maybe, and you mentioned these um, the union, the IWW union halls. Um, it, it, I wanted if you can talk a little bit more about those union halls and how they related maybe to the um, railroad camps and and that sort of uh, dynamic that was with the IWW, or even just talking more about the the railroad in general and how these workers moved around the country. Yeah, so the the story of the IWW during this period is inextricable from Hoboy. Um, traveling around the country uh, on the railroads and and not paying fare, but 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 as trespassers uh, climbing aboard the trains uh, to get to where they needed to go. This was at a time when the road network in the country was still uh, very much underdeveloped, and when automobiles that was about to change, but automobiles were extremely expensive, and uh, very few of these workers could afford them. And so that was the only practical way to cover the large distances that these workers had to cover. Um, so I mentioned they're organizing in industries like automobile, I mean, automobiles, I'm sorry, uh, uh, agriculture and lumber and construction and oil and shipping. Well, uh, it was typical for the for workers to work in all of those industries in the course of a season or a couple of seasons or years. Um, and that meant traveling from the oil fields of Oklahoma up through the wheat fields of Kansas into the Dakota, sometimes into Canada, and then west from there into the uh, uh, the mining camps of Montana or um, and the uh, the lumber camps in Idaho and Oregon, Washington, uh, down to the um, the docks in San Pedro or San Francisco and the construction camps in, um, in in California or wherever. And all of that had to be navigated and was typically navigated on the railroads. Um, this ended up being, logically, a place where a lot of the organizing was done. Uh, this is where you found the workers. Uh, this is where you needed to organize them. And it also was one of the places where organizing paid off uh, because traveling around in this way was pretty perilous. You were trespassing, which meant you were at the mercy of railroad police and sometimes train crews who use all kinds of brutal methods to enforce the railroad's property, right? Throw you off the train, beat you. There are plenty of cases of people being shot at uh, by railroad police or sometimes train crews. And then there were the common criminals on the trains uh, who were looking to rob people. 
and or beat them up or commit unspeakable crimes against them, assaults against them. Well, one of the virtues of IWW organizing of the success of the union was uh, to protect these workers from that. Once they organized, and they often said this, they turned the tables on the hijacks or yegmen, as they call these common criminals, as well as against the railroad bulls, the police and the train crews, to the point that um, by the late 19-teens and into the early 1920s, a lot of the lines, uh, the IWW membership card, the red card, was essentially a pass to ride the railroads, not as a in you know in the in the, in the passenger cars, but to ride the box cars um, or the gondola cars or whatever without being molested by cops or train crews or uh, or or these common criminals. And that was one of the reasons that many workers joined uh, from the protection that the union would give them. And I would also add one of the reasons that a lot of workers joined um, was because being a member of the IWW was a very effective and meaningful way of redressing the incredible loneliness and vulnerability of being one of these workers. Out in the world, no, obviously no cell phones, no social media, um, no telephones of, of any significant sort, no way of being in touch with your family or relatives or friends, if you even had them somewhere in the world. Being a member of the union gave a lot of these men a family, um, the kind of support, friendship that they otherwise didn't have. And that contributed to the extraordinary solidarity uh, that that pervade the organization. Well, and I, I've seen that in some of the new organizing uh, Uber and Lyft drivers uh, with uh, there's a Colorado independent driver union um, with CWA. And when those folks get together, you can tell that they're building a community outside of the gig based app. It's it's, you know, within themselves. And there's uh, this camaraderie um, and, a, and a focus on, on the sorts of things you were mentioned the IWW did around education and and being a, a resource and a community um, and and you see that in some of the other uh, writings of the IWW um, there's an isolation to these extremely low wage workers and the IWW it appears was like that place for them to build a build a a, a coherent community um, within that context of extreme exploitation. A absolutely, absolutely. And at the same time, to give those workers a sense of their historical purpose and mission. I mean, this is really extraordinary when you think about it. You take the lowest paid workers, uh, the, the, the most debased stratum of the working class, the people who had been essentially rejected and reviled by much of the, uh, by much of the society, and you tell them not only are you important, but you are the most important people in this whole society. Um, you will you you will lead this society uh, into a a new era uh, again a commonwealth. Uh, you will need you will lead society into um, a promised land, as it were. And that again was extraordinary because it wasn't among people who were the labor aristocracy, let alone a bunch of folks with fancy degrees and a lot of money and all this. These were people who carried around all their belongings on their backs. And you, you are the most important people at this moment in history. And for many of these workers, that 
that had an extraordinary appeal to them in a way that I could completely understand. Um, I wanted you to have a, an opportunity to talk about some of the direct re- uh, repression that maybe individuals felt. Is there any story, a particular story from the, the book that you think um, expresses that uh, or how that repression individually affected, um, you know, an organizer or member? Yeah, there, there, are, there are a couple of things you can say about that. One is, is to do with how um, pervasive the repression was. Um, so if you follow the fates of individual members, uh, not only leaders like uh, like Big Bill, Big Bill Hayward, but um, for instance, a guy who I started in the book writing about, a guy named Joe Neal, um, you find people who were persecuted time and again, not once, uh, not twice, but time and again, uh, arrested for assaulting um, a, a train crew member in what was almost certainly one of these conflicts that I alluded to a minute ago, in prison for that, picked up during the war um, for violating some kind of an order, uh, hell for deportation. Some of these people were uh, were foreign nationals and didn't have their, their citizenship papers. They were subject to deportation, um, uh, arrested for vagrancy, and then arrested for criminal syndicalism. And in the case of Joe O'Neill, thrown in prison for six uh, for six years, um, where he um, he uh, for a time was in the asylum in prison. That was not uncommon. There's another uh, person I I write about in the book uh, called Fred Esmond, uh, who was in jail so often that his draft registration card listed the jail as his address, um, and was thrown in prison for violating um, the Espionage Act. Uh, after a big trial in Sacramento, and uh, was uh, was extraordinarily defiant um, during that trial, where forty six IWWs were put on trial, and they they were so called silent defenders. At least most of them, they refused to honor the proceedings by saying anything. They sat there silent um, because they regarded this as 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 uh, a sham. Um, and they broke their silence when they were convicted and were were allowed some time to speak at sentencing. And Esmond loudly condemned the proceedings, even though he was sick. Uh, he had been like a lot of IWW prisoners held in unspeakably terrible conditions um, awaiting trial. A, a great number of defendants died awaiting trial, either because of the so-called Spanish flu or uh, some other kinds of tuberculosis, some other kinds of con- disease, but mainly because the conditions of confinement were so awful. They packed these people in to cells with hardly room to stand, keep them there for days or weeks at a time, um, give them horrible food to eat, um, that sort of thing. Uh, well, anyway, Esmond was one of these workers who broke his silence very bravely, condemned the judge and condemned the whole system for what was done to them. Well, a couple of years later, Esmond had been broken uh, by his time in Leavenworth Prison. Uh, It's a very sad chapter in this story, and not an uncommon one, uh, where he had to be, um, by dint of the efforts of this extraordinary woman named Carolyn Lowe from Kansas, I believe, who was uh, one of the union's lawyers, a socialist herself, um, a very, uh, to my reckoning, capable and compassionate person, um, who, uh, in his instance, got, got him out of prison 
and and confined in um, an asylum because he had he lost his mind, as they said back then. And uh, that, to me, underscored what this was about. Um, as I suggested earlier, um, this is a book about the realities of repression. Um, there are very few people who listen to this story who've ever been in prison before. Um, it's not something to take lightly. Um, there are other accounts of uh, workers here, IWW members, that point to a different side of the way repression worked and what was so horrible about it. Um, they they just some of them were married and they they missed their wives and family. Um, I mean, which of us would want to be separated from the people we love for two or ten or whatever years? Um, and to do that knowingly, not because we are a bad person or we robbed a bank or something like that, uh, but because we joined this union with the aim of organizing the working class and changing the world. And the, and the one thing I would add that, that kind of emphasizes the extraordinary nature of the sacrifices these workers made is how many of them stepped up to be prosecuted, knowing that this was their fate. And once they were prosecuted, who rejected offers of clemency if they would walk away from the union where judges or, or, or governors said, I'll let you out. All you have to do is renounce the IWW. Now, a few of them did, but most of the stories I saw, uh, the workers said no, said no. And, and, and in a remarkable kind of uh, coda to this whole story is uh, many of them refused to leave prison even when they were entitled to uh, some kind of early release if they were required to leave before their fellow workers were also allowed to leave alongside them. It really is remarkable, um, but also tragic because behind that bravery was a great deal of suffering. Well, and, and when I think folks currently active in the labor movement, especially the young folks that are looking at this history, um, they tend to see some um, some positive. Uh, uh, they tend to see the energy that the IWW had and think about how they might be tapping into something similar right now. In your introduction, though, you ca you caution the labor movement of seeing the the Wobblies experience as you know a sign of the revival of the current labor movement. Can you talk a little bit about that and a little bit about um, the lessons we could take from from this book? Yeah, one of the lessons I think is 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 to be careful. Now, I'm a lawyer. I can't advise people to break the law. That would be unethical, and I don't do that. But in a general way, I think you know we all know there's a there's an impulse um, to react to unbearable circumstances with militancy, and um, the IWW is an example of that. Not the kind of criminal militancy of the old anarchist movement a hundred years ago. Um, but a militancy nonetheless, a defiance. And um, there's something admirable about that for sure. But there's, there are also risks. And um, one of the risks is the kind of repression, is being subject to the kind of repression that these people were subjected, uh, subjected to. The other kind of precautionary thing about the IWW story that I think bears thinking about is um, the role of the state. 
and the role of progressives and liberals. Um, the IWW never trusted that element. And that mistrust was confirmed by what happened to them. Yes, it is true. Some progressives did come to their assistance, but many of them, as I mentioned earlier, uh, were active in the union's persecution. Um, that kind of precautionary attitude, I think, is something that would serve the labor movement well even today. Uh, don't assume that these people are your allies. Um, we saw what happened with, say, the Employee Free Choice Act, uh, what's that now, 13, 14 years ago, uh, where these progressive elements, including Barack Obama himself, said, oh, yeah, we're going to support that. Now, this wasn't some revolutionary statute. This was modest reforms, in some ways conservative labor reforms. But labor wanted it. Uh, and 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 thought that they would they had the support of these people. And they didn't. They didn't. Um, and folks were going on as they did about the Pro Act a couple of years ago. Oh, if it wasn't, if it just wasn't for these one or two people, who, um, whatever would 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 not stand with us in um, overcoming the filibuster. Uh, I looked at that and thought, no, though behind those one or two people are ten or twenty other people uh, who call themselves liberals or progressives who don't want this stuff enacted. And you could say the same about, you know, the railroad uh, dispute of last fall and the disappointments um, that 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 resulted when uh, the Congress imposed a settlement uh, that not all of the, <laughs> needless to say, not all of the, the unions involved in that dispute wanted. So I'm not saying that, uh, you know, every liberal or progressive is treacherous. Uh, in his or her dealings with organized labor. That's not true. Uh, but there is still a lesson here about um, the fact that that every liberal and progressive also can't be trusted, uh, that not every liberal or progressive can be trusted when it comes to labor rights. Yeah, and I, and you know, in addition, hat additional hat that I wear, I, I do lobby for the AFL at times, and I feel that in my in my bones, and that it's been difficult to pass really strong labor legislation. It does seem at times that progressives will be really good on on women's choice, on on some of these other uh, the environment and these other major pillars of specifically the Democratic Party, but then labor does does tend, or I will see it see it tend to be maybe a second or third thing. And there's a different way of thinking Even up to and including a recent, uh, you know, democratic party uh, platform here talks about free enterprise as the introduction to the labor platform, which I just felt was, feels inappropriate uh, to me. Um, I do, you know, uh, I do want to, uh, uh, ask you again about something that's more modern in the labor movement, because um, some of the focus of your studies are on the rule of law as it relates to labor. Now, this is a bit of a long question, but uh, bear with me. So during the recent Starbucks congressional hearing, Senator Cassidy accused the NLRB of not following the rule of law currently and favoring unions. Um, while I will say I came to the same conclusion about the former uh, uh, uh general counsel of the NLRB, uh, Peter Robb, a Trump appointee, who seemed to be unabashedly anti-union in his decision. Uh, can you talk a little bit about the rule of law as it relates to the NLRB and uh, and the NLRB and, and, and sort of how that's interacted with all of this? That's a great question because it goes to what I, it connects to what you just, uh, what we were just talking about. 
uh, about the kind of fickle nature of politics when it comes to labor and the way the way different rules seem to apply. Now, here we're not in the domain of revolution, but the domain of kind of conventional reform politics. But even there, it seems that different rules often apply when you're talking about labor versus other issues like civil rights or the environment or whatever it may be. And I think that's a point that's generally true. So we who, who teach or practice labor law can point to all kinds of examples like that, like where did the replacement worker rule come from or uh or 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 the uh the uh uh the 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 no strike injunctions or the the uh uh injunctions involving no strike clauses and that whole kind of line of jurisprudence and law that has essentially resurrected injunctions and um in the context of um in in the in the in the face of say, the Norris LaGuardia Act, which seems to actually prohibit these kinds of injunctions. So there, there's a, a common theme here, which is that labor is kind of, speaking of the rule of law, a domain of sort of relative anarchy. I don't mean the anarchy of people who wear black or, or, or carry red flags or black flags or whatever. I mean the anarchy of judges and people in Congress and administrators of these agencies who think this is labor, so some different rules can apply. Now, of course, what's happening now is that now you have uh, a strongly pro-labor administration at the National Labor Relations Board, and all of a sudden people have discovered how anarchical labor rights can be. But as you allude to, no, you don't have to... Um, you, you, you you don't have to have waited for that to find that kind of dynamic. There is a long history of that, and usually it's been to the detriment of workers. And when that was the case, not much was said about it. Uh, now it's, you know, it's a scandal when the law is being bent, it seems, in a way that might benefit workers. That's a great explanation and something, you know, sort of from my perspective, again, as a, is, you know, a full-throated unionist, I, I, I think that this is, you know, more in line with what I'd want to see and that workers that are being targeted are, are seeing, you know, small, but, but some consequences come out of that. And then, um, you know, I think did just wanted to get to what you, you were able to, to, to say just now, which is sort of that this is a, um, back and forth at the National Labor Relations Board between who's in power, who's um, appointing the folks there, and then the decisions that they're making. Whereas I think you and I would probably agree, we would hope that that we could have disinterested parties that are looking carefully at the existing law and enacting it full throatedly, you know, in a in a way that benefits you know uh, workers and respects the rights of businesses. You know, th that's a little bit more within that rule rule of law. Yeah, you know, and I, I think much of what the current general counsel is doing can be described as rectifying um, things that have been done over the years. I, I think this, you know, this kind of all started a, what twenty years ago with the Bush, the second Bush board, being very aggressive in um, overturning some settled practices and precedents, or at least very aggressive compared to what had been done for decades prior to that, and then and the Trump board was. Uh, kind of double down on that practice. So I, I think a lot of what uh, the current board and the general counsel in particular is trying to do can be described as setting things right. And, and one thing that 
they've done that I think, or, or that defines, I think, the attitude of the general counsel's office that goes to the point we were just talking about is rectify what I think is a a long-standing dynamic that's emerged with labor law. And that is the odd way that labor rights, in any context where labor rights are at odds with other important federal rights, it, it always was labor rights that had to yield when these matters were litigated. Um, and there was no particularly principal way for justifying that. It was just, that's what happened. Somehow labor rights were at the bottom of the heap here. Again, not because of something in the statutes or in the Constitution or anything like that. It was just labor rights conflicted with, with, with civil rights. Labor rights yielded. Labor rights conflicted with uh, the paper I wrote, an article I wrote some 20 years ago, the law of mutiny. Labor rights had to yield just over and over again. Labor rights had to yield without any attempted compromise or anything of that sort. Um, and that goes to the initial point you raised about um, the odd way that labor rights have been treated in America. And to the extent the NLRB or the general counsel's office is trying to set that right, then I say more power to them. That's just basic fairness. Yeah, thank you for that. And then um, as we wrap up, I just wanted to give you a chance to to maybe um, uh, say anything else that maybe you'd want our listeners to hear or, or discuss uh, anything about the book that maybe I didn't touch in our conversation so far. Sure. I, if you know, if you have time, get a hold of the book. It's in some of the libraries and it's for sale and all of that. And, uh, and uh, you know, read it with an eye to learning uh, as much as you can and maybe thinking about uh, how this story relates to the world we live in uh, today. I don't pretend I have all the answers or, or wrote a, a, a perfect book, God forbid. But I do think the story, if not the book, is is a compelling one and one that has a continued relevance uh, today uh, for labor, for activists of all kinds uh, as we um, try to deal with a world uh, that is, I think, uh, falling into um, very serious period of crisis uh, and one that 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 demands that that begs um, for the kind of activism, uh, the kind of broad thinking radicalism, the kind of audacity that define the wobblies and what they attempted to do a century ago. Uh, you might be a wobbly, um, and and that's great. You might not. Uh, that's great as well. But either way, I think what happened to these people, as tragic as it was, um, has within it some lessons, some enduring lessons for us and thinking about where we are in society today uh, and how we're going to deal with the pressing problems that uh, that are falling upon us. Yeah. Our guest today is Ahmed White with his book, Under the Iron Heel. I will also suggest our, our listeners uh, find a copy, uh, very dynamic storytelling within it. Um, it is uh, both enjoyable as a story of individuals and a story of our uh, greater society. So thank you so much, uh, Professor White, for, for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much. I'm happy to be here. This has been the Labor Exchange on KGNU, Boulder, Denver, and Fort Collins. Our guest today has been author and professor Ahmed White with his book, Under the Iron Heel. I'm your host, Robert Lindgren. Join us next week at the same time for La Lucha Sigue. 
The Labor Exchange is a member of the Labor Radio Podcast Network. Find more great labor radio at laborradionetwork.org. Thank you.